last night in our adoration, we meditated a little on that uh, Psalm 26. It is your face, O Lord, that I seek. Hide not your face. And now in today's gospel, we have Herod the Tetrarch, who is anxious to see Jesus, but not for religious reasons, uh, not because he wants to convert, not because he feels repentance. I think more out of maybe entertainment, out of out of maybe in just curiosity. It's not for religious reasons, but more curiosity. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Because it can't be John the Baptist. I just beheaded him. Uh, can't be one of the prophets. So who is it? What does he do? Why, why all this talk about him? And I think it's, it's interesting how, well, it's human nature in a way that, that we do, we like to be entertained. We like to find things interesting. You know, that's why even... Uh, when you look at different speakers or, or world leaders or even radical groups, if they have a, a leader who's charismatic in the non-religious sense, whatever, who's, who's just a very engaging speaker, even though they may be an, an absolute fundamentalist, maybe even terrorist, uh, if they're very convinced about what they say and they're very enthusiastic about it and they lay out a clear plan and they have a clear goal, uh, that can be very, very inspiring. I mean, even at the, since 9-11, there were various news reports about um, Europeans and Americans going over to fight with ISIS because they believed in their cause, you know? Uh, and they, they, they believed like the, that the ISIS were fighting on behalf of the oppressed against this, you know, the, the, the big bad West. Uh, but they were, they were convinced by the, the, the rhetoric that they were hearing. I mean, obviously the reality on the other side is quite different, that the Taliban were treating their own people fairly badly. Uh, obviously, especially women, but we won't go into that. Uh, the point is, if, 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 if someone speaks and teaches with conviction, there's something attractive about it. Jesus, when he speaks, when he, speaks, when he preaches, when he teaches, he absolutely does, does speak with, with conviction. And there is absolutely something attractive about it. But what's interesting is, similarly to the experience that, that uh, Herod had with John the Baptist, uh, what Jesus says isn't always popular nor is he trying to be popular. You know, he never, ever plays up to the crowds. We saw that in a gospel a few weeks back where when he goes to, to, to preach and teach, I think, I think it was in Nazareth, and uh, people are delighted with him. They're delighted to hear all of the, the, the preaching and teaching that, that comes from his mouth, and they're, they're, the crowds are standing in adulation. It's fantastic. Uh, and then he goes and he blows all that out of the water by saying... At the time of uh, Elisha, there was no, there weren't any people healed from um, leprosy, apart from Naaman, the foreigner. These kind of stories that were quite, quite provocative, you know, Naaman, the Syrian. Uh, so Jesus deliberately, deliberately disregards that kind of popularity. He's not trying to be popular. He's not trying to appease the crowd. He's not trying to say what everyone wants. His job is to, to speak the truth. Our job as missionaries is to follow suit. Yeah, our job is not to be popular. I'll clarify that one in a second. Our job isn't necessarily to be popular. We're not aiming for popularity. But at the same time, the message that we proclaim should show that we are more 
joyful. It should, it, should be, it should be visible that this truth that we talk about sets us freer, makes us happier, that it, that it brings us into a healthier society, that it grants us healthier and happier and more secure families. So we don't have to, we're not trying to just say whatever is popular. We're not trying to be entertaining. This is another thing when, when I was um, uh, learning to preach um, I remember Father Paul, our founder, he, was, he took the four, there, there were four, there were three in my year, so he took the three of us aside, there was, there was four of us, the three of us, and, and Father Paul, and we, we spoke a little about preaching and, and that, and he said, when you're preaching, your job is never to entertain, your job isn't to be a clown, your job is to, yes, preach the truth, you should try to be interesting though, but you don't have to be a comedian. You know, so you don't have to be a comedian, but you do have to be interesting. You know, and I think that's something that that we, in whatever aspect or whatever way our our mission takes us afterwards, we have to show that our faith is super interesting, it's super relevant, and it's super joyful. But we do have to make it interesting. You know, that's where the the, the lives of the saints, like they, they they fill in. They give us so many stories to draw from to illustrate what the gospel looks like when it's put into practice. But so we should be engaging. We should absolutely be interesting, and we should absolutely be convinced about these things ourselves. It's not enough to know the truth and to be someone into the church with the truth. That's not really going to work. The faith is. Presented, what do they say? The faith is, is, is caught rather than taught. It's, you know, you, you, you catch it rather than just have it taught to you. The catching shows that there's kind of a, a responsibility on our side to actually, you know, reach out and grab onto it. There's, we have to decide this is something I want. So then our faith becomes personal, it becomes real, it becomes a, an actual decision that, that we make. I was just talking to somebody recently about um, Protestantism and Catholicism and uh, the, the, the similarities and then the, the misinterpretations of both sides um, of what the other believes. And the idea of, of a personal relationship came up because it's something that, generally speaking, in Protestant churches, they would focus a lot on, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus, even though in Scripture it never says anywhere, personal relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship with God. It doesn't, that term isn't there. The term that is there is, is a covenant. A covenant. This is the new and everlasting covenant now we'll hear in, in a few minutes at the consecration. So the Lord sets up not just uh, a group of friends, even though he says, I, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, absolutely. But he doesn't say, enter into a personal relationship with me. But he says, I, I, we're bound now. Even actually, the word for covenant in German is Bund. So, A, because Bund. So, like, we're, we're bound in this, in this covenant. It, it, it links us together. All right? So, what, what is this covenant? Well, it's helpful to understand a contract by understanding, to understand a covenant by understanding what a contract is. So, in a contract, generally speaking, I give you money, you give me the service. So you're a taxi driver, I give you the money, you bring me home. Or I give you money, you give me a house or your land. Or, you know, there's a contract. I give you something and in, in return there's some sort of exchange of property or goods. Okay. Uh, that's not a covenant though. 
A covenant, it doesn't mean I give God prayer and then he gives me grace. Or I give God time and he gives me eternity. It's a fairly good deal if that were the case, but that's not really how it works. Uh, A covenant, in Old Testament terms, was that I give myself to you and you give yourself to me. That's why it's, 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 it's a marriage covenant. There's mutual exchange of persons. I give myself to you, you give yourself to me. So when, when the Lord says in Scripture, which we then repeat in, in the prayers of consecration, that this is a covenant in my blood, a new and everlasting, now only God can say, I now establish an everlasting covenant. I can't establish an everlasting anything. Right? God can establish an everlasting covenant because he's God. So an everlasting covenant. So this mutual exchange of persons. I'm giving myself to you in my blood, emptying myself for you. Again, they wouldn't have understood that the first time they heard it during the Last Supper. What does this mean? Like, you know, this is my, my blood. This is my body. I think the significance of that might have been apparent immediately. But this, we're establishing now a covenant. I'm giving myself to you. And the response to that for the apostles would have been obvious. They, they knew how all the Old Testament covenants worked. God gives himself to us and it's like you know, a person saying, I love you. There's kind of a pause there afterwards where the response to that the right response or the proper response that really is just one, you know, I love you. Yeah, you're, you're nice too. You know, we just know, hang on, there's a disparity here, there's something wrong. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, see you later. You know, I mean, unless you say I love you too, there's something really, you know, you, you just, you know that's what's supposed to happen here. So if the Lord says, like, this is a covenant in my blood, I'm giving myself to you, Do you know the response like that, 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 that? There's like this this hanging silence, where the Lord is is expecting our response. And I give myself to you, Lord. That's that's what the answer is supposed to be. We shouldn't just say it because it's the right thing to say. We should say it because it's what we actually believe. But this, this is what's happening here, you know. So while personal relationship is something I speak about an awful lot, I think it's very, very important. I think it's important to engage the heart in our relationship with the Lord. But at the same time, the, the personal relationship isn't actually the goal. The goal is actually way, way, way deeper. Deeper. Uh, it's the, the, the goal is, is I give myself to you, Lord, not just we're good friends. Please, good friends is a really, really good start. I think it's hugely important and a great number of Protestants, because they have the personal relationship with the Lord, their lives have been changed and they do great work. You know? So personal relationship, it really, it is a good um, it is a good thing. It's a good goal, but it's not the end goal. It's not the end goal. The end goal is even deeper. The end goal is, is this covenant, this mutual exchange of persons. God has given himself to me already. And now that, that response from, from us, from me, is, is awaiting. It's like, you know, dot, 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 dot. Do I respond? Do I respond? 
And we can respond as a church, which is nice, and there are prayers that we all say together, which is good and necessary. But ultimately, do I respond to the Lord's covenantal relationship with my yes, with my self-donation? Do I respond with that? I think for many of us, we didn't even know that was the goal. We didn't even know that's what was expected. You know, the whole idea of covenant isn't really spoken about much. Uh, Scott Hahn has kind of, I think, maybe brought it to the, to the fore again, it, it, the importance of, of entering into this covenantal relationship with the Lord. So today, as we attend this Mass and as we receive the Lord in Holy Communion, or as we listen to this at home, If you can imagine yourself, place yourself at that Last Supper when the Lord is sharing his, this meal with his apostles. And one particular aspect of this Last Supper, this Passover, was missing, which would have been plain obvious to all of the apostles. There was no lamb. With the Passover meal, <clears throat> it was all very clearly indicated that the lamb has to be taken, an unblemished lamb, so no, not a sick lamb, not a lame lamb, <clears throat> a healthy lamb. It was taken, it was brought to the temple, the, the lamb's throat was caught and the blood was drained out of him. He was given over to the priest and the priest would uh, strip the skin off the carcass and give you back just the... The, the carcass minus the, the skin and the blood and that would have been brought back to the family home and then eaten as the Passover meal Okay, so it, this was uh, an essential part of the Passover so when we hear the account of the Passover in scripture the new, with the last supper sorry, when we hear the account of the, of the last supper it doesn't mention a lamb anywhere it mentions the very cups, it mentions dipping in bread in, 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 in dishes and so on, but it does not mention a lamb. Now that would have been, as I say, glaringly obvious to the apostles. Where's the lamb? I mean, for us, I mean, we don't really have a, for, maybe for us, kind of comparable, pardon the profanity of, of the comparison, like, but like, at Christmas, you know, to not have a turkey. Or no Christmas cake. I mean, something that's, hang on, we've always had turkey, we've always had a Christmas cake What's, what's wrong? We, we would notice. So the apostles would have noticed that there's no lamb. It's like one of the key aspects of the Passover meal. This is a covenant in my blood. Behold the lamb of God. I am the lamb. I'm sacrificing myself for you so that you can enter into this relationship, this covenantal relationship with me. What's your response? Amen.